Good morning. On Thursday afternoon, just after two, Joseph Pushka was found guilty of the murder of Ashling Murphy in January 2022. The news broke during Liveline and Joe spoke to Paul Healy of the Irish Mirror. Well, Joe, I'm actually literally just out of the courtroom um, okay. and there's, there's hoax all around. But uh, uh, Mr Puska barely reacted, to be honest. He just kind of put his head down when uh, he realised mm-hmm. that the verdict was one of guilty. Um, as you know, Joe, it took the, the jury just over two hours to come to this yeah. uh, particular verdict. And there was a lot of emotion. There's still a lot of emotion even just outside Court yeah. 13 here this afternoon. The family are all hugging one another. There was a photograph of Ashling. Uh, brought in to the courtroom uh, a framed mm. photograph and the family actually stood up uh, with that photo and there was a round of applause when the jury were leaving the room um, and, and just a lot of emotion and, and, and mm-hmm. upset here but, but I suppose closure and a, a sense of you know that the, of joy that, that the correct verdict has been handed down. Yeah. And Paul obviously the jury only took two hours and it was a unanimous mm-hmm. verdict what was the expression uh, of the jurors when because it's an extraordinarily emotional time for them as well when the when yeah. the jury four person read out the verdict you could you could tell even from the faces of the jury members that they were quite emotional about this there were, there were tears in some of their eyes um, I think there was just a sense of you know bringing a, a grieving family here some some justice this was a crime that I think affected the entire country. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's rare that a journalist would offer opinion, but when you look at the evidence in this yeah, case, yeah. Um, I mean, it was overwhelming. Uh, and Mr. Puska, you know, he told the Guardian nothing under arrest. He continually lied upon lie. And then yeah. when he got on the witness stand last week, he really stunned everybody. And I think really that was the final nail in the coffin, to be honest, Joe, because once he started to tell this story, which he hadn't told anyone mm-hmm. up until now, 22 months later, where he was supposedly the victim of an attack where he was supposedly the person who was the only person who would have witnessed the murder of Miss Murphy, that he then stood over her and that he then ran away uh, after apparently trying to help her. Um, I mean, I, I suppose once he began to tell that story, it was hard really for anybody to see it any other way. Also on the line, Irish Times legal affairs correspondent Mary Carolyn, who had covered the three-week trial. How difficult was it to cover this one, Mary, given the horrific nature of the attack on Ashling? It was one of those incredibly difficult cases, Joe. Um, the Murphy family were in court every day and they had to listen to a lot of very distressing evidence, yeah. particularly evidence from the pathologist about the injuries inflicted yeah. on Ashling. And uh, they became particularly distressed when they were shown her blood-soaked white T-shirt and uh, CCTV clips of her walking along the canal on what turned out to be her last journey. Uh, it, it was a very traumatic trial. Uh, Judge Hunt himself described it as more exhausting than any he had uh, gone through in mm-hmm. quite some time. And I think that feeling was shared by uh, virtually everybody in court. And, um, and as, as you say, Mary, you don't have to be... I, I'm the father of a teacher... In her twenties, and um, you don't you don't have to be a father of a young woman to uh, uh, feel empathy for that dear dear family, and feel such hurt for what happened, uh, dear Ashling. And Mr. Justice Tony Hunt had thanked the jury and spoke of evil in the room. Also on the line, Ellen O'Malley Dunlop, former director of the Rape Crisis Centre. It's justice. 
he didn't get away with murder, but it's the heartbreak of what happened and what happens to other women as well. Absolutely heartbreaking, Joe. I'm a Midland girl myself. I come from County Leash originally, and I know, you know, what how close-knit these communities are. And the Murphy family, I mean, it's horrendous what they've had to endure, you know, not just horrendous murder of their gorgeous girl, uh, but also, you know, going through uh, that court case and, and listening to the, the awful... Um, uh, injuries that were visited upon their beautiful girl. Uh, I mean, it's really horrendous. And I mean, what the judge said in terms of evil, yeah. I mean, sadly, uh, you know, this is the kind of thing we're having yeah. in our community. And um, women uh, are don't feel safe. And we, you know, even walking out in the local park myself, I would, if anybody was walking yeah. behind me, I'd wait to let them walk in front. I mean, that's not good enough in today's world. But, yeah. um, I mean, today, really, our thoughts and our condolences are with that family and with that community. And as I say, thank God, justice has been delivered for yeah. them. From Liveline on Thursday. Wine Casey, Ashling's boyfriend, spoke outside the court and thanked the Gardaí and the prosecution for their work and their local community for its support. And he spoke of the kind of person Ashling was. Ashling was a vibrant, intelligent and highly motivated young woman who embodied so many great traits and qualities of the Irish people and its communities. Her life had a huge impact on so many of those around her and she was the epitome of a perfect role model for every little girl to look up to and strive to be. She was not only an integral part of our family, but she was also a huge shining light in our community, a community in which year in, year out, she gave back to as best she could. And in Tullamore, a community remember Ashling Murphy and pay tribute to her life. Here's local journalist Vivian Clark. The local men's shed, they built a bench um, in August last year and they assembled it and put it there and their idea was rather than this be a place of trauma it would be a place of memory and it's become a beautiful tribute to Ashling. I actually walk there every week myself and every week I see that there are new flowers, new tributes and it's actually a beautiful memorial um, and I hope it brings comfort to the family. And I thought it was particularly poignant this week that some of the local shops had a lovely picture of Ashling in the window with a candle just to keep her in the memory, not that that's going, that's going to fade, but just to remind people of what had happened and what was happening at the moment with the trial and uh, just to keep her forefront of our memories. From yesterday's Morning Ireland. On Wednesday, the beef industry under the spotlight. A case of atypical BSE was detected during routine testing. Now it can occur naturally, particularly in older cattle, but it has resulted in an export ban of beef to China and this is a blow to Irish farmers. On Morning Ireland, Mary spoke to Brendan Golden, chair of the IFA's livestock sector. How big a blow is this to Irish farmers who have been involved in the resumption of exporting beef to China? It's very disappointing to hear this and when the news broke yesterday we, I just felt well everything seems to be going against us at the moment because we've been dealing with very high costs and everything for over the last year or so and then to hear this news was really disappointing yesterday but I hope it can be resolved quickly and I hope that the Chinese respond quicker this time round. The Chinese market had only just opened up after a three-year suspension from a previous BSE case. 
and all the while Martin Hayden, Minister of State with special responsibility for new market development at the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine was travelling to promote Irish beef in Southeast Asia. He spoke to Claire from the Philippines. It is disappointing. There's no doubt uh, that this has arisen. But once we knew there was the atypical case, um, it is really important to state first and foremost that there is no risk to consumers. As a matter of fact, the thing that always highlights to me when we travel abroad um, in putting our best foot forward at, at opening new growth markets um, for the, and increasing the value of our exports is how well regarded I, Ireland is from a safety perspective. But then Claire put this to the minister. Now, we're coming up to COP28 this month and, you know, we're getting 50 million euro from the Philippines, from the beef exports, 40 million euro we were getting from China. You know, the amount of time, money and effort that we're putting into this, really, we should be focused on our 2030 climate targets and moves to reduce the national herd. Well, those things aren't connected because we are going to reduce our emissions from our food production system. We've been set very ambitious targets in the area of agriculture to reduce our emissions by 25% and farmers are well on the road to doing that. We've reduced our emissions already. That will continue this year when you see the reduced nature and use of artificial but fertilizer. But the bold and fact measures. is you're out in the world trying to sell more beef. No, what we are looking to do is open more markets to give our food companies the best opportunity to reach the highest value markets. So Food Vision 2030, our 10-year strategy, talks about increasing the value, not necessarily the volume, of our trade. However, Claire Byrne was not letting this one go. At a time when we are seeing climate change in action, we are seeing it on a daily basis. We are trying to send beef which we know produces high emissions, halfway around the world, you're there in the Philippines trying to exploit a market that might be best left to the local producers rather than us sending our product, you know, all of those air miles around the globe. So first of all, air miles in terms of transport of food is a minimal part of the emission profile of the food we produce. It's one or two percent. We are in countries that have very significant food security issues who need that high protein uh, food and have a demand in that area. And we produce that more efficiently than most other countries in the world off our pasture based system. And if you take in particular the west of Ireland, where we have our grass fields and not a huge amount of other opportunities of agricultural produce to produce from some of that land, we produce that beef that lamb, uh, that dairy products more efficiently than probably anywhere else in the world. And, you know, the Chagas Mac curve shows we will meet our 25% reduction targets, but we won't hurt the Irish economy in terms of doing that. We can still do that. Okay, so drive on, you're saying. Get, drive on in terms of the of value selling beef we get all around the world. Because we produce it more efficiently than anybody else and we're not resting on our laurels. Okay. We are in the lead in terms of how we do that and we continue to uh, make more efficiencies in all the right. future. We have to leave it there. Now, all of that was on a Wednesday. The previous day, Claire had spoken to environmental journalist George Mombio. Can you just paint me a picture, George, of how you think agriculture needs to change? What should they be discussing yeah. at COP28 in that regard? Yeah, so so by far and away, the, the, the most environmentally damaging component of agriculture is livestock farming. And I know that doesn't go down very well in Ireland or indeed in many parts of the world, but unfortunately, it's just one of those uncomfortable truths that we've got to face. It's responsible for more um, um, greenhouse gas emissions than global transport. 
Um, it's second only to, to to fossil fuel burning. It's absolutely essential that we tackle that as well as fossil fuels. And yet there's very powerful lobbying to stop us even dis- having a, a, a reasoned discussion about it, let alone making any progress. Mm-hmm. Because when we talk about it on this programme with any of the farming organisations or indeed with any farmers, they say there's a huge demand for what we're producing and we do it. Our grass-fed cattle are the most sustainable in the world. That's what we mm, will hear. That's that's absolutely not true. Um, in fact, grass-fed meat production is the most damaging form of production. I know people find that really hard to hear. It's very counterintuitive, but it's because grass-fed animals produce a lot more methane and nitrous oxide than um, than indoor animals, but they also use a lot more land, um, which creates a massive carbon opportunity cost as that land could be used to support forests and wetlands, which store a great deal of carbon. Um, and instead, it's kept largely bare for 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 grazing and you know people don't want to hear this stuff and and the job of you and me people like us is to tell people what they don't want to hear it sometimes makes us unpopular but we still got to say it okay let's distract ourselves here's oliver doing bono doing hurling I love the Bono stream of nonsense when he gets into it you know i'm going to describe hurling now which is like rock and roll except with lean Mean men and women, sport with honour mythology mixed with sexual frustration, hurling. Don't even ask. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Joni Mitchell turned 80 on Tuesday at True Great, and so many programmes paid tribute to her music. And on the Fanning Files, the woman herself, and not a man easily starstruck, but... When Dave met Joni. You know, I've often been asked if I was ever in awe or just overwhelmed by anybody I interviewed. Once, Joni Mitchell, live on the radio in 83. It's a cracking interview. Well worth a listen back. And if he was overwhelmed, he hid it. Fanning style. After you got that ukulele, after you learned how to play the guitar from a Pete Seeger record, you played the coffee bars, you were off to the Ontario Folk Festival, you married Chuck Mitchell in 65, you went off to New York via Detroit, and firstly others recorded your songs. Um, Tom Rush did uh, The Circle Game, Judy Collins did Both Sides Now. Now in 1969 the first LP came out, then Clouds, Lays at the Canyon, Blue for the Roses. Now, would it be too simplistic a generalisation if we're talking about those albums that what Joni Mitchell was up to here was sort of trying to sketch out the coming together of say love, freedom, communication and the cost of success? Those were the main themes, yeah. Absolutely. Love and freedom, you know, the the, the paradox of it, you know. Women in, in America were... Um, freeing up their lives in a way in a way all from my mother's generation of women there were more freedoms offered and so the thing was slightly experimental and so there were new things to contend with we had more choice than our parents did a lot more choice which was very confusing there were no guidelines yeah well like you 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 said recently for instance that the anatomy of the love crime is your favorite subject now as that is a quote and since like putting it that way that angle would suggest to me that happiness in a relationship you would think is a very rare thing oh not not really um it's harder you you understand like the writing is a private business if you're having a good time you're less liable to be writing about it and and joy i find a very evasive thing to describe you know you you live it out it's very present tense whereas um the things that go wrong require scrutiny and sort of wallowing you know so so the easiest themes my predilection as a writer 
was driven into reclusiveness by some uncomfortable moment was to take it apart and write about it. You know, I guess it was my form of therapy. You know, that's that's what a lot of my work is about. And on the wonder of blue on Sunday night, Louise Duffy and artists of all hues talked about the impact of Mitchell's truly iconic 1971 album, Blue. This is writer Ian Malini. When I think of Joni, I think of how she opens Blue with a song called All I Want. I am on a lonely road and I am travelling, 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 travelling Looking for something, what can it be? Oh, I hate you some, I hate I think this is how it always is with Joni. I want, I want, I want. Do you want, do you want, do you want? I want to be strong, I want to laugh along, I want to belong to the living. Alive, alive, I want to get up and drive, want to wreck my stockings in some jukebox time. Do you want, do you want, do you want to dance? I think of the repetition. Saying once is not enough. Drive it home, the point. The disclosure of this ardent desire the force that keeps the show on the road forever. The scent on the fingers. Will you take me as I am? Will you take me? The fire that warms and then consumes. A woman must have everything. Right. Happy birthday, Joni Mitchell. On Arena, live from the Dublin Book Festival, writers Paul Lynch and Mike McCormick. McCormick's book is titled This Plague of Souls. But describing it and maybe even selling a few copies, well, he is not making it easy for himself. One of the things I wanted to establish uh, when, I, when I was writing this book was, was could I write a book that I couldn't explain, uh, a book that I couldn't talk about? Uh, a book that was divorced from its own, and this is my stab at that. And, <laughs> and um, my my um, my editor at uh, at Tramp Press says, "Thanks, Mike. It'll be easy to sell that." And I wanted a book, a book I can't explain or a book I can't talk about. But there are so many things in the book that I that um, I, I, I don't I, I don't understand myself. Uh, that I don't find. Um, I think they're clear. I think the book is clear, but I, there's there's a lot of questions about it that I can't that I can't answer. A lot of questions about it that you can't answer, a book that I can't talk about. Ladies and gentlemen, Mike McCormick, thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you, folks. <laughs> but Sean got there, pro that he is. And this book involves identity theft, a quest of sorts and questions which may or may not be answered. And it's been in McCormick's head for well over a decade. I started out being a meditation or being an examination of how worlds come apart, how they fall apart. But as 
uh, as I progressed through the book, as I stuck with it uh, down the years and that, it became a, uh, an examination of how do we put the world back together? When it has fallen apart, when it's gone to a shambles, how do we put it back together? Who's going to stand up and put it back together? Who has the right to put it back together? And at what expense is that done? If I was asked to explain it, I'd say it's about two men who go looking for something. One goal is looking for his wife and his child, and the other seems to go looking for God. And God says, I can't help you. Um, and um, those two desires lead them to this conversation in, in a hotel lobby. Mike McCormack, his book, This Plague of Souls. Also with Sean, Paul Lynch, his novel Prophet Song has been Booker shortlisted and described by The Guardian, no less, thus. The Irish offspring of The Handmaid's Tale and 1984. (laughs) Fun times. Yep, it's dystopian Ireland where populism has triumphed and the eyes of the state are always watching you. Life as normal going on against the backdrop of silence and fear. Things are pretty bad. There are bombs. You don't know what's going to happen if you go mm. down to the shop. You don't even know if the shop's going to be there and if there's going to be anything in the shop when you get there. But there's, there's talk about a humanitarian corridor being opened from Lansdowne Road through the Port Tunnel. And I have to say, my blood froze as, as I read that because the obvious resonances in multitudinous areas of the world, this very moment, this very day, this very week, this very month, this very year... Uh, it really did chill me to the bone. This is, this is, this, I mean, it's one of the kind of the central ideas in the book. I mean, a lot of people think, oh, Prophet Song, you're saying this is going to happen in the future. And, you know, what Eilish comes, she has this recognition later in the book when she's, when she's been really, truly put through the ringer. And she realizes that, you know, the end of the world is actually always a local event. That what the prophets are singing about is not the, the end of the world. It's the end of your world. It comes to your town, it comes to your city, it comes to your country. And, and for everybody else, it's a rumour or it's something we watch on the news. And this is what we're doing now. And this is what the book speaks to, is the timelessness. This is what happens in Prophet Song, has happened in the past, it's happening now, and it will continue to happen. And that's, that's, that's one of the, sort of the, the central ideas that it explores. From Arena. On Liveline, voices telling of their distress and sense of hopelessness as they watch the death toll in Gaza rise and the distress of families of hostages still held by Hamas. Here's Martin. Both sides are victims. And what you, sir, can do with me is be a voice of reason and say to the people of Ireland, please, please let this stop. Our government, our Taoiseach is doing the best he can, our Taunister, our president. I understand diplomacy and I understand the need to mm-hmm. keep doors open. But we are watching every night, my wife and I watch yeah. a genocide being streamlined live on television. It's being streamlined live on television. We're sitting there drinking our tea, watching people, watching a genocide and watching people being murdered. And I repeat Both sides are victims. Jewish people have gone through untold horrors. But literally, our dog sleeps on the floor beside us in our bedroom and he wakes us in the middle of the night and I turn and my wife is crying. She is silently crying because we're thinking in the darkness, people are dying, they're rotting in the ground. 
and we're not doing anything. And I say we, I mean humanity. It's not okay. It's not okay to say, it's, you know, let's look for a pause. That's insane. That what's happening is insane. And this is what he was proposing. Can we go, you and I, on a peace march? I would love to do that. A peace march, I say. Let us have the Jewish people. Let us have Palestinians. A couple of weeks ago, my wife drove to Dublin to go on a peace march and a former minister called her and the people in the peace march a member of the Third Reich. I don't think she is, nor am I, but I would love to walk, and I mean it literally from the bottom of my heart, I'd love to go on a peace march with that former minister, hand in hand, because I don't think he really means it. The following day, more calls. Here's Lou. I'm absolutely paralysed with helplessness. I have five grandchildren. One of them, one of my granddaughters is eight years of age. Mm-hmm. So she's the same age as Emily Hand. And I, I, year after year after year, I hear our leader saying that we're a small nation, but we have huge influence in the world. And I want our leaders now to use that influence. I'd, I'd, I don't care who's to blame for this. But what we're seeing every night on our televisions is a scene from hell. And we're going to continue seeing it. We've seen it in Yemen. We saw it in Iraq. We saw it in Syria. We saw it in Afghanistan. War does not work. I don't know what we can do, but I do know that if we do nothing, we are wrong. And this weekend, marches and protests all over Europe calling for an end to conflict in the Middle East. With Cormac on Wednesday's drive time, Mark Ragav, senior advisor to the Israeli Prime Minister and former ambassador to the UK. He stood by his country's right to defend itself and its efforts to minimise casualties by asking people to move to the humanitarian safe zones in the south of Gaza. Where are the, the areas of non-fighting? Because you've also bombed the south. No, but not in this the humanitarian zone. You know, the rockets are being launched from the south against our cities, so of course we have to respond. But in this area along the coast, the humanitarian safe zone, that is an area where people can be safe. And but we urge people to go there. And the truth is, but people just are telling allow us me to nowhere finish this sentence. People are telling no, no, us nowhere that's is not true. That's, well, they, that, well that's I'm just telling you true. what people are telling us in this programme. But the, can the I tell UN, you, the US, UN, where is safe in Gaza? Something. Where is safe in Gaza? No, you have to know something. You have to know something. Gaza is not a democratic... Uh, society. Hamas rules that that strip of land with an iron fist. There's no independent civil society. And so all the people talking to you from Gaza, they can't speak out against Hamas. If you interview people, they all follow the party line because even, if they don't... Even the UN? Even Médecins Sans yes, Frontières? Definitely. Even the Palestinian... Of course, Re- why? Even the WHO? Oh. They are all the people who are telling well, us that nowhere is oh, safe in Gaza. But they're repeating what they're hearing from their local staff who are Hamas or are influenced by Hamas. Cormac pushed him on this. So we're now told by uh, Hamas-run health uh, uh, ministries in Gaza, for example, and authorities that 10,500 people are dead. They're also the numbers being used by aid agencies on the ground and the UN as well. 10,500 people. So what number of innocent civilians dead would it take for Israel to say, we better stop here? 
First of all, those numbers, as you said, come out from a Hamas-controlled Ministry of Health, and so we have to take them with a grain of salt. Secondly, your assumption in your question, if you don't mind me correcting you, is that they're all civilians. The idea that they're all civilians is, frankly, ludicrous. How many are uh, civilians, uh, in your course, opinion? Oh, obviously, there's civilians caught up in the con- How conflict, many? but we are targeting... I can't give you a number. Can you give me a number? Well, there you go. You don't or even you know. To, or should we just believe Hamas's numbers? No, no, no. We just it, believe Hamas's no, no numbers? The point is, you don't even know. We have a, 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 a an estimation. You have no idea how many believe, children have been killed. Can I tell here. you? But no one has any idea. Unless is you want acceptable? to believe Hamas's numbers. International law, question, inter- international law obliges sir, you to know. No, international law obliges me to defend my country when attacked. International law says that when there are humanitarian sites, and I can quote you the direct uh, uh, items from the Geneva Convention if you're interested, but if Hamas turns a hospital into a, uh, a target of its war machine, if Hamas turns a school and stores rockets in schools, they have committed a war crime and they do not have immunity. You Otherwise, know. every every fascist, every extremist can take civilians hostage and say, I'm immune. That's impossible. It didn't happen to ISIS. And don't hold an Israel, Israel to a standard. You don't hold any other country. That's not fair. From drive time, back in a bit. Welcome back. Ah, get behind me, Santa. Way too early. But if you were thinking of splashing out, more money than sense, this might fit the bill. Here I have two Rolex watches. And this is a lady's watch here. And yeah. if you want to have a look at that. I have a look at that. You have a look, yeah. If you have a look so at that there. it's still in the box. It's still in the box, right? And, and that's an 18 carat yellow gold Rolex date just automatic watch. That's worth €6,000. Wow. Serious money. And that is Michael Gubbins, Chief Bureau Officer of the Criminal Assets Bureau. He was in studio with Claire with quite the haul. Luxury goods to the tune of 6.3 million euros his office has seized in 2022. Our job is to go after the assets that individuals have acquired through their criminality. So, well, I have a display here this morning for you of the articles that we've taken from people. We're there because these are assets that people have acquired through criminality. So they've left behind them people who are addicted, you know, people who have chaotic lifestyles. They've caused, you know, a consternation in their community with families and they've left people distressed, yep. violence, violence and intimidation, so it all, all feeds that. into that, right? So they live this lifestyle and they show it to their communities mm-hmm. in which they live. So we go in and we take it off. Them. Our job is to deny and deprive. And the spoils of deprivation include jackets and designer shoes. Claire is palpitating. Oh, the shoes. The yeah, shoes. Right, I think you've your eye on these. Well, I don't um, know. They wouldn't fit me. Um, anyway. Size 37. <laughs> right. Um, so these are a pair of black uh, Louboutin shoes. If you want to have a look yeah. at them there. I'll have a look at these now. These, yeah. are, these are very glamorous shoes. Again, well, they have been worn. If you're thinking of buying them for yeah. Christmas present for somebody You'd in the You'd have to auction, get them resold there, but to get the red on it there, yeah. right? Uh, they're 700 euro. And I suppose the reason I brought some of these items here this morning, and this here is a Louis Vuitton bag, and that's uh, 1,580. And we have a Prada bag here. Uh, what is it? A Prada Veluto, right? Right. You have all the names. Right. Like fair I, I, I've got an education <laughs> in the last couple of years, so I have. And should you be so inclined, it's for sale. There'll be an online auction with over 100 items in it, somewhere with the retail value of about half a million euro. 
of which about 50 are watches, your Rolex, Hugo, uh, Audemars Piguet type watches. So uh, this w- is how you realise the value of this. So somebody Correct. could could own this watch, which was either bought by a criminal for somebody or worn by a criminal. Correct. Ooh, creepy. Maybe a gift voucher. And festive ads are on the telly. This year's John Lewis ad features a Venus flytrap. Yum, 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 yum. Kieran Burke from Johnstown Garden Centre joined Ray. Because if the kids do ask, here's the answer. How does it work? How does, it, how does the Venus flytrap work? Well, it's a, it's, it's a small plant. Yeah. Now, it's only about an inch high and maybe goes up to about five or six inches wide. And it grows like in really wet soils in its native habitat in Carolina in the States. And it has these leaves which are covered with long, they almost look like teeth either side of them. So if you look at a close-up picture of them, they do, or look at them close-up, they do look quite fearsome. But inside these two leaves, which have a hinge at the base, they face each other. And inside those, there's tiny little hairs. Mm. Now, they give, the flies are attracted to them and they land inside it and when they trigger those hairs, these two hinged leaves close over and they trap the fly inside these two oh. leaves. And then what they do is they release enzymes which basically kill and make the fly rot. And from the rotting flesh of the fly, they get their nutrients. Wow. And the reason why they do that is that where they grow in their natural habitat is the soil is very poor. So most plants will get nutrients from the soil as organic matter like fallen leaves rots away. But because the soil is really wet and lacking in oxygen, it doesn't rot away. So this is how nature has adapted uh, to use animals instead of dead plant material to provide the nutrients for the plants. Do they know what they're eating or is it just anything that goes in? As long as it's alive and the right size, yes, they'll yeah, eat yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> you heard the man. Keep those toddlers away. And on the History Show, comics, foreign comic books in the 1950s, a source of fear and possible corruption. Yummy. Ian Kennelly brought us this. It was not unusual for regional newspapers to describe foreign comics as, and to quote, vile productions, foreign trash, pornographic, or just plain evil. A typical example can be found in a Longford Leader editorial from June 1954. That the so-called comics which are being imported into this country in tens of thousands are responsible to a certain extent for the high incidence of juvenile crime is an opinion that is fast gaining ground here. It is amazing the large numbers of Irish youth who read this kind of literature. These imported comics colourfully feature torture, persecution, oppression, murder and sex. They appeal to the baser instincts and to the morons who will be found in every community. Youths who devour them voraciously are bound to be swayed by the false glamour given to crime and gangsters. The latter are often portrayed as heroes and daredevils, and the stories are liberally sprinkled with corpses, maimings, shootings and scantily dressed ladies. We cannot allow the minds of our youth to be corrupted and debased by this imported trash. God damn it. And so a fight back in the form of a comic for the Irish. 1953 brought us the Leprechaun. The new comic was sponsored by the Society of St Paul in Italian Religious Order, which contemporary newspapers described as the largest publishing concern in Italy and whose main purpose, they wrote, was to make the best use of the press, radio, television and the cinema for the spread and protection of Christianity. Science fiction stories were a staple of the Leprechaun. 
Those stories originated in Italian comics and were then republished in the Leprechaun, but the character names were changed to give them an Irish spin. Each edition, published every two weeks, contained at least one story printed in Irish. The comic included original strips from Irish artists, such as one depicting the events of 1798 in Wexford. And it had one high-profile fan apparently thumbing its pages. If we are to believe the Connacht Telegraph, the comic's influence reached all the way to the Vatican. In March 1955, the paper stated that His Holiness the Pope has approved of the Leprechaun as most suitable reading material for children. However, not such a big hit with those pesky kids. The Leprechaun shut up shop in 1956. Now, they say it's the decade the taste were got. Or was it? geniuses in the form of Stock, Aiken and Waterman. Or Waterman, Aiken, Stock? Do we call ourselves Waterman, Aiken and Stock? Because I'd already been successful. Yeah. So I said, look, let's put the ha- names in the hats and we draw them out and it came out Stock, Aiken, Waterman. Oh, that's the... That's uh, the way. And Matt Aiken said, we sound like a firm of solicitors. I said, better than we'd be a firm of accountants. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that is Pete Waterman. He spoke to Oliver and was very charming. And yes, it was Cha-Ching... And it was a hit factory. I knew that you couldn't be in the studio past nine o'clock at night. So I knew there was a finite time you were creative. And after that, the creativity dips. So you start at 11, you take your meal break at five for an hour, and then you only work till nine o'clock, and that's it. And then at nine o'clock, we used to go down the pub, have a brief till half past 10, 11 o'clock, they would go home, I'd go to bed for an hour and then I'd get up at two o'clock in the morning and I'd work through the night and I'd go to bed at seven o'clock in the morning. Really? And they, yeah, and, and so that's how we did it. Because uh, so, what well, it sounds like, the bit in the pub is work as well. Oh, it was, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah it, was, it was serious. I mean, that was, that was the only time we really got to sit down and discuss or write whatever we were doing. I mean, you know, we had like, we, who's in tomorrow? Well, Kylie's in. Have we got a song? Well, no. Um, well, we'd better write one. OK, so, uh, you know, you'd sit there with a pint and you'd write the ideas. And quite often, 
with an artist, they'd actually be in the studio while you were still writing the song. The artist, by the way, never knew this. They, they no, no, you've been working for weeks. We've had this song weeks, yeah, especially <laughs> written for you. Of course it is, yeah. It's your song. And the truth was, no, it, it was... I remember Better the Devil You Know, we were actually writing while Kylie was in the studio. Really? So we were sitting one side of the glass looking at Mike not looking at Kylie, so she couldn't see our faces. And we were writing the lyrics down and holding them up like this, you know, as if we were the judges, and Mike was going, oh, yeah, and, uh, and he would write it down, and then that was the way it worked. Make no mistake, he knew the music business and managed to negotiate it with quite limited literacy. Oh, I, didn't, I couldn't read or write till I was in my 30s. That's astonishing for what you go on to achieve. Well, I think if you're not good at something, you make it up in another way. I was a, I was a good singer. Yeah. I mean, I was a choir boy up until I was 18. You know, my voice didn't break till I was 18. And, I mean, that's, you know, you, you know, you stand in a choir at 18 singing soprano and you look a right Burke, you know. So, <laughs> you know, that was... And then, of course, when the Beatles came out, um, the first thing you do is you, you pick up your guitar, uh, guitar and try and learn or, or you, you bluff it, but you just sing along. Well, what a very talented bluffer. And he sang like an auto-tuned canary. Here he is on Melon Kim. I mean, this is a chance encounter with with somebody, is it, that you... That was the luckiest day of my life. Luckiest day of my life. When we got to Respectable, um, it was such a moment. You know, boom, it's number one. And on hearing Rick Astley for the first time in a country band. And they were the worst band I think I've ever seen. (laughs) But, um, But there was this singer. He was fantastic. And he reminded me of Van Morrison. He was really? very much like Van Morrison. Yeah, very much. When you think about Rick Astley, he's very much like Van Morrison. Yeah, might be pushing your luck there, Pete. But nevertheless, never going to give you up a massive hit. Over three really? billion plays now, yeah. That's extraordinary, isn't yeah. it? It's not bad for a track that we wrote in the car on the way to work, you know. Because it's a true... I was on the phone to an ex-girlfriend for about two hours and he's desperate to get to work. And he went, you're never going to give her up, you know. And I thought... Whoa, that'll do. That'll do. And I said, I've got an idea. And I, we literally jumped out of the car, ran into the building. I got my keyboard player. I said, Right, I've got this idea for a tune. And they never going to let you down, never going to run around and deceive you. And it was just awful. And Mike Stark came in and he went, That is dreadful. But I see what you're trying to do. And within like 10 minutes, we'd written it. Rick went in and did a guide vocal. And we forgot about it for six months. And one day, well, this track came wafting down the stairs and I went to Mike, what is that? He said, I don't know, but it's great. We walked in, um, that promotion guy, I said, what's this track? I went, it's Rick Astley. I went, oh my God, it's a hit. Bringing us to the end of Playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week and our parting gift to you, the Astley Earworm.